we invite your attention to the Song of Solomon. If you can find the book of Isaiah, it's right before it. It's very simple to find it if you go backwards. But if you try to find it any other way, you're going to be in deep trouble. Song of Solomon is, uh, haven't been there in many, many years, but it's a beautiful book that is a figure. A figure. It stands out in the Old Testament as a figure or very prophetic parable to the love that Christ has for his people and also his people's love for him. And I've always been mixed up reading the Song of Solomon because you don't know who's talking at any one point. You have to think a little bit because sometimes it goes back and forth. And in the 8th chapter and in the verse 12, it's apparent that she is speaking of him. That the Shulamite is speaking of her groom. But it could also be conveyed that he speaks of her. In either case, it's good. It's very good. So let me just read for you this, verse 12. My vineyard. Now I'm going to approach it first in the few minutes that I have before you and very quickly from her vantage point and then take it from his My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit thereof, two hundred. Throughout the Old Testament, it's not far-fetched to understand that the vine, the vineyard, is a picture of God's church. We read of Stephen in the book of Acts, chapter 7. He's, he mentions the church in the wilderness. And if you recall, the church in the wilderness was a church that was reaching forth for her beloved. So much of the Song of Solomon depicts a love from the woman to her Lord, yet out of touch, out of reach, hard to embrace, difficult, not seen, looking for and this depicts a lot of the church in the wilderness, the early Old Testament believers who sought diligently for the Lord Jesus Christ, that received the messages from the prophets, but yet could not, for the mystery of it, really lay hold of and embrace fully. In this particular chapter, this dear sister is coming out of the wilderness, verse 5, leaning upon her beloved. It seems in this last chapter... Uh, the fruition of all that she desired in the previous seven chapters has come about. That she's now embracing her Lord. And it's a beautiful picture. Now, I just want to make a little side note here for those of you, uh, especially in our modern day and age, that look at the Song of Solomon as merely a marital guide to happiness. Uh, I would warn you against that. This is a beautiful figure of the Lord's love for his people. It is best understood in that way. Now, if there's a principle in this uh, book that you may be able to take and apply in your relationships, I think it's a good thing. But it is an extension or a departure or it's a stepping out of the actual text itself. But here she says she has a vineyard. And again, this vineyard is the Church of God, if you will. And all of us should understand how precious a vineyard is. Now, it's useless 
I was working with uh, Tyler a couple weeks ago in the backyard, and I noticed the vine was overtaking the forsythia. It was also running, running up the pole there and running across the wires, and I, saw, I could see trouble. And so I had Tyler go ahead and take these cutters and nip that vine at the bottom at where it comes out of the ground. And you know by the afternoon, all those vines going across those wires were shriveled up and dry. And of course, I collected them that week and put them all in a big pile. And to this day, they're sitting on my driveway, and they're practically and totally and completely worthless right now. In the book of Ezekiel, we mentioned that. We were there a couple weeks ago talking about a great vision. And one of the many visions that Ezekiel the prophet had was that of a vine, a vineyard. And he got to the point where it bore no fruit. Now, a vine that bears no fruit, he concluded, is practically worthless. So if you're bearing no fruit as a church of God, it's a worthless church. It's useless to God. Now, you can take that vine, like I took in my driveway, and try to do something with it. It's good for nothing. And burning is about the only thing that it's good for. Uh, Ezekiel pictures the vine that was good for nothing. He said, you couldn't even make a peg out of it, stick it on the wall to hang your hat on. Or he used a cup or some utensil. But it was worthless. Unlike the trees of the forest, uh, even if they don't bear fruit, you can at least chop them down and you can carve something out of them, make something useful out of them, but not a dead vine. And we as a church here are beholden the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Brother Mark's prayer. He said in his prayer, we're here to worship. Now watch what he said. And I quote, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Steve preached last week a sermon that I have been thinking about all week. Because he set forth the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a friend. He's a counselor. He's a savior. I mean, it was remarkable. That's what we're here. And as long as as a church, the vineyard, we bear that kind of fruit to the glory of God, that honors the Lord, the Father. We will bear fruit. Now, if we become useless by not bearing that kind of fruit, then we as a church are good for nothing. When we do bear that kind of fruit, we're willing to sacrifice. We're willing to give. We're willing to worship. We're willing to hear the, the gospel preached. We're willing to lay the phone down for a little bit, sacrifice a little bit. I don't know if you know what that means. A couple weeks ago, my phone was destroyed. I don't know why, but it was gone. Thank goodness I had insurance. But all my contacts, all the pictures, all the photos were completely gone. But that's not what really I'm reminded of right now. For three days, I was without a phone. Now, you try that. You just can't do it. It's more than a distraction. It is our God. We depend on it. I was remember going down the road, and I was thinking, you know, let's see. This thing's got 350,000 miles on it. Uh, if I need help, who am I going to call? Because I can't call. I'll have to do what I used to do. I'll have to depend on the Lord. I'll have to depend on the Lord. Are you willing to sacrifice this morning for your, the vineyard that God has given you? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great man. He had a great medical career ahead of him. 
lots of money, lots of opportunity awaited him as a young medical, a very astute medical student with a, a tremendous ability. But he had a call to preach the gospel. They asked him just how could he do it? How could you sacrifice so much? He said, I've sacrificed nothing and I've gained everything. You know, when you put the Lord first in your life and you set him first in your life, none of these things move you, Paul said. Neither count my life dear unto myself. You see, what he measured against all that stuff that hears now and gone tomorrow is the glory of the precious love of Christ. And how do we know him outside of how we're, we're presented him through the scriptures? How is it that we know him? Is he a figment of our imagination? Is it something simple? No. David said he hoped in thy word. Quicken me according to thy word. Preserve me according to thy word. The word of God is the way whereby we understand how Christ is set forth. And it's through him and in him we bear fruit unto his glory. And it is through his abiding in him that we have fruit that remains, that is consistently true to the Word of God. And so when she says, my vineyard, which is mine, I sense a little bit, a degree of great interest, of sacrifice, of devotion. Nobody's going to take this vineyard away from me. That's what she's saying. Well, we just turn it around and I'll close with this thought. Think about this particular scripture. My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Think about that from the Lord's perspective. Let's say for a minute, He is speaking these words. Jesus loves His people. He loves His church, His bride. He came to seek and to save His bride, to die on the cross for her. And now by that, His right belongs to His sovereign rule and ownership. We are His possession. Do you think for one minute, if you were the only person living on the face of the earth, think about this, you and you alone, and everything else compared to in the world, but you and you alone, Jesus came to die for. Do you know he would give up everything, the world, creation, and the universe, for you? He says so. He said, my vineyard, which is mine, is before me. We are before the Lord. We are always before the Lord. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He loves us, the Bible says, to the uttermost. Having loved them, he loved them to the end. How far did he love them? He loved them to the point where he divested himself of his personal relationship with his own father and then took upon himself in his own body on the tree the sins of his elect. Do you know what sin feels like? I think you do. Have you ever been offended because of sin? I think you have. You know, God took upon himself all the sin of his people. That's a large amount of sin. And the effect of it was humongous. It was humongous. It was equated to an eternity in hell. That's how far the Lord loved his people. He gave himself an offering for us. And so as a consequence, when he rose from the dead and now seated at the hand of all majesty... He owns by sovereign right, by love, by grace, by forgiveness. You can name them all. 
He owns us fully through and through. I don't know how He could ever have said on the cross. I don't understand it. But I believe it. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does He own us outright? He does, in spite of who we are by nature, because He cleansed us from all sin and unrighteousness. What a beautiful vineyard the Lord has. And He expects to see some fruit of it. I heard the fruit last week in a great sermon, and I heard another prayer this morning that bore the fruit to the honor and to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a principle that I learned early on when I first came among the Primitive Baptists that I feel like has made a big difference in my life. I was 15 years of age and was beginning to learn a whole lot of things about the Lord and about His doctrine and about His church and about the practice. And there's a principle that I learned early on that has made a big difference on how I view the Scriptures, on how I view God, on how I view our labors here in this life. And it's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, and we'll back up and look at a few verses right here. It says, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Luke, if you learn this early on, it'll make a difference in the rest of your life. It'll help you. It will help you, Tristan. It'll help all of you. I learned this at 15 years of age, and it made a big, big difference in my life. Now, first of all, the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Sounds like that God is a jealous God. It sounds like God is a deserving God of our worship. He said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he said, thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. He said, you shouldn't bow down to them. You shouldn't serve them. He said, for I, the Lord, thy God, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. He says that about himself. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then the principle that he teaches us right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31 says, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. All glory, all praise goes to the Lord. Sometimes we don't understand why God does things the way he does. Sometimes we question, even when we read the scripture, why God does things the way that he does. But we can rest assured that one of the reasons that God does things the way that he does is so that he will get the glory. First of all, God deserves all glory. He has all power. I like what Brother Compton used to say when you would read the scriptures to him and Sister Chrissy and Sister Laura. He says uh, in, in Matthew, the last chapter of Matthew, where it says that God has 
all power. I remember what Brother Compton would say. He said, if God has all power, then how much power do we have? Well, he said right here, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now it starts out in, in, in Corinthians right here. And this little church that, uh, that uh, Paul was laboring with, that Paul was writing letters to, there's a lot of folks today that probably would declare non-fellowship with this church. Because they were, in the eyes of many folks, they were out of order. They had lots of problems. But the Apostle Paul felt a desire and a burden to go and labor with folks that had problems and had challenges. He felt like that he had something that just might help him. He had something that just might make a difference. He says right here that they, uh, there began to be a schism among them. You know, if you ever see anybody that begins to cause a schism, the best thing that you can do is create a little bit of distance between yourself and the person that's causing the schism because God hates schisms within his church. He says in Proverbs chapter 6, he says there's six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination before him. He that soweth discord among the brethren. You ought to put some distance between yourself and somebody that begins to sow discord among the brethren because the Lord loves his church. The Lord is jealous for his church and he does not delight in schisms within his church. In fact, the Apostle Paul comes down and he says, I hear that there's a little schism among you in the church. And he says, I just want to tell you, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you. He did. Now, that's interesting that he would say that. But he said, I'm thankful I didn't baptize those of you that are causing a schism within the church. But Paul writes gently to him and he says, I'm writing to you and encouraging you that there should be no divisions and there should be no schisms within the Lord's church. He comes on down. He says, Christ is not divided. But then he comes down and he says, uh, he says, uh, for I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made the foolish that made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God. And this is interesting right here. God could have chosen any way that he wanted to, to reveal his son to his people. But he says, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Did you know that what we're gathering here today and doing and worshiping God is a lot of foolishness to a lot of folks? It is. If you don't have the love of God in your heart, if you don't have the spirit of God in your heart, what we're doing here today is foolish. It's a foolish message. It's a foolish method. But if you have the love of God in your heart, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching's not foolishness to you. That's right. It's not. It'll make a difference in your heart. If, if it somehow finds a lodging place in your heart, I'm not saying all of it, but some of it, maybe a lot of it. If it finds a lodging place in your heart, that is an evidence that God has visited you with his spirit. He says, I've chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. He's not talking about saving them eternally. 
But I tell you what, if we listen to the preaching of the gospel, it saves us from a whole lot of things here in time. It really does. He said the Jews require a sign. Sister Tess at New York two weeks ago brought a young man. She's always bringing somebody to the New York meeting. She brought a young man, and uh, Mike and Katie were there, and uh, uh, he worshiped, and it was the first time. She said, you know, my friends think I'm strange when I say, would you, would you join me for a worship service in a basement, in a dining room? And we don't use musical instruments. We sing a cappella singing. And she said, my friends think, what kind of disorganized group is this? And she said, but this friend of mine came from Boston. And she was sharing with us yesterday. She said he came from Boston. And she said he is, uh, he's, his only influence of religion at all is, is, uh, is a Jewish uh, influence. And he said to her after it was over with, he said, I really enjoyed the, the time together. I enjoyed the, the singing. It's real different. I enjoyed uh, the message. But she said, he said, I just don't understand all this stuff about Jesus. And she thought, that's what we treasure so highly. And yet this was new to him. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. We don't have anything else to declare except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says unto the Jews, he said, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews. It's a stumbling rock. He says unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty men, not many noble men are called. But he says, but God, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world. You know, sometimes when we're reading God's word, when we're looking at God's word, I would think to myself, if I were doing this, I would have done it different. But you know what? I didn't do it. God didn't ask me and he didn't consult with me. God says that he does it his way and he tells us why. He says, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Let me just toss one out there for you. Just one for your consideration. Some really smart men, some really wise men in this world will declare unto you that this world is millions and millions of years old. I believe that it's probably somewhere around 6,000 years old. You may be thinking these young men especially may be thinking, well, you're just way off base. But let me tell you something about how God could have done this. When God created the earth, God created Adam, and God created Adam at least somewhat of a mature man. He did. When God created this earth, he didn't have any problem creating this earth in such a state that it appeared to be in an aged state. Didn't have any trouble doing that. I haven't seen any dinosaurs. I believe that they existed. But God could have created the earth in such a way that it appeared that that was the case. God does things in such a way to confound 
the mighty. Now look what he says right here. God could do it however he wanted to. He says he has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things that are despised hath God chosen and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. And he says, here's why God does it the way that he does it. Here's the bottom line. If you understand this principle right here, if you understand this principle that, that, that Paul is teaching right here, he says, God, who is sovereign and can do it any way he wants, he doesn't have to justify it to anybody. God does things the way that he does so that no flesh should glory in his presence. God does not want us to get the glory. And I'm telling you, this is a great warning for all of us right here. He says, so that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, it's referred to in Jeremiah, it's again in 2 Corinthians, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And let's look at the creation in Genesis chapter 1. According as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I love the account of the creation in the book of Genesis. I just happen to believe it happened the way that he said it did. And he says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth. And it says the spirit of God moved upon the face of the uh, of, uh, on the face of the waters. I'm not going to go through each day of creation, but I want to I want to briefly go uh, through creation and help you to understand that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then each day, God began to add to that creation. And as God was adding to the creation, each day he would say, he looked upon his creation and he said, it's good. Now, you know what? I can't always say that everything I do is good. And sometimes once in a while, I feel like I can say it. And then really, truly, I ought to give the Lord the glory for it. But everything that God does, every time, all the time, is always good. Now, God could have, if he had chosen, when God created the heavens and the earth on the first day, he could have said, okay, on the second day, I'll create man. I need man to help me out. I'd like to consult with man. I'd like to have some advice and counsel from man in the rest of my creation. But God, who is uh, sovereign in what he does, God, who is all wise, God created everything that was necessary in this earth, on this earth, in the remaining days. And then on the last day, you know what he created then, right? You know what he created? He created man. On the last day, you know, I have a pretty good idea of the reason that God created man on the last day. If he had created man on the second day or the third day, then we'd have felt like that we could claim some of the credit for helping the Lord in creation. We'd have thought that he needed us. 
But God in creation created all of creation and man on the last day so that we know the principle of this verse that he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We can't even glory in creation because we came on the scene after the fact. All right. I like the way that God has designed salvation. I love the way that he designed salvation. I really thought, I was taught, and I believed that I had to help the Lord out. That he needed my participation in some fashion. I just had the blessing of sharing with a lady this last week that had never heard of the doctrines of grace. She felt like that uh, she said that she wanted her husband to live with her in heaven. And she said she knew that he needed to accept the Lord. And she said he's been going to church with me. He's been talking about the Lord. He's been interested in the Lord. And I had the blessing of telling her. I said, I want to at least share with you what I believe about it. And I said, I believe that if he has a heart to go to church and worship the Lord. If he has a heart to read your word. If he has a heart to talk about it. Whether he ever responds to the call, his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Not because of what he did, but what Jesus Christ did. She said, you know, I've never heard of that. Never heard of it. Well, the reason that he designed it that way is so that we can't glory in our salvation. All right, let's look what he says right here. This is really, really good. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to give you a whole lot to go home and read. It's super, super good stuff. If you'll read it, it'll be a blessing to you. It really will. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. Really, really good stuff. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We're talking about, we talked about creation. In that we can't glory in creation, that we glory in the Lord who did creation. Here we're talking about salvation according as he, that's God, hath chosen us, that's uh, you and I, in him. He chose us in him, in Christ, from before the foundation of the world. That's, that copyright was a long time ago. He says, from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated and and that's not a complicated word it's not a it's not a it's not a a loaded word that means a, a lot of different things it just simply means that God predetermined where you're going to end up he predetermined your destiny he says having predetermined our destiny having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ and he says here's why he did it according to the good pleasure of His will, not according to our will, but according to his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, where he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You hear a whole lot of reports that you have to accept Christ. But here it tells us that Christ accepted us. He did. I'm so glad that he did it and he did it completely. And he did it in such a way that we don't get the glory, but he gets the glory. 
He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. In addition, he says, by the way, you also have forgiveness of sins. Anybody have a sin problem right here? Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins because of the blood that he shed upon the cross of Calvary. He says, you have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We love the message of God's amazing grace. And grace covers our sins. Grace covers our shortcomings. Grace covers our inadequacies. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made unto us uh, known the mystery of his will. According to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. He comes down and it gets, it gets really good here in verse 12. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times. He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He says we have an inheritance. I see signs occasionally of folks that traveling up the interstate in a brand new RV and they'll say on the back bumper, we're spending our kids' inheritance. Well, do you know what? You have an inheritance in Jesus Christ and it's reserved, not here, but in heaven for you. Not anybody going to spend it. It's reserved for you. But he said he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, that doesn't mean that we're absolutes. What it means is that God doesn't need us to help him out. And then he says right here that we should be to the praise of his glory. We're the beneficiaries. We're the recipients. According as it is written, he that glorious. Let him glory in the Lord. Romans chapter 8 addresses it ably again. Really, really, really good. In Romans chapter 8, chapter 9. You might consider going there and reading it. According as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We believe that God should receive the glory. We believe that the way God designed creation, we believe the way that God designed salvation is that he should get the glory. That'll make a difference in how you read the scriptures, how you understand the scriptures. If you read them with the understanding that everything that happens, happens for God to get the glory and God to get the praise, not us. Now, we've seen that God receives the glory in Creation. We've seen that God receives the glory in salvation. Now we're going to show you that God gets the glory in our lives each and every day that we live. First of all, I believe the scriptures teach. Brother Steve talked to, to us about this. I believe that the scriptures teach the principle of bearing fruit and that we are to bear much fruit. And the way that we bear fruit is to take the talents that God's given us, the abilities that God's given us, whether it's one talent, two talents, five talents. We use those talents to serve God and to serve his people. The way we serve God is we serve the Lord's people. 
That's one of the greatest ways to serve the Lord is by serving his people. But we do that and God can add to it and God can bless. And he says, if you use the talents I've given you, whatever those talents are, if you use the talents that I've given you, you have the principle, the precedence that's set in the scriptures that he'll give you more talents and he'll give you more abilities. But I'm going to tell you, he will only do that up to a point. Let's look at this principle that's taught. Go over to Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter four. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to just really go through this super quick, but it's, it's, it's a real, real good point right here. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and the dream troubled him. Anybody ever have a dream and your dream troubles you? I don't think I dream, but if I do, I don't remember them rarely unless I watch a scary show before I go to bed or eat something that doesn't settle well with me. But other than that, I don't really know that I dream, but they say everybody does. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and his dream troubled him. And it troubled him because he didn't know what it meant. He felt like that there might be a meaning to it. And he said he called all the smart folks, the astrologers, the soothsayers, the magicians. And it says that none of them could interpret the dream. And then it says that Daniel came before him. And he at least recognized that the spirit that Daniel had of the gods that Daniel worshipped in his mind, that there was some something different about it. And so he came and he called Daniel before him and he gave the account of the dream that he had. And, and Daniel, Daniel said, well, I, 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 I can interpret this dream, but I don't really know that you want me to tell you what the meaning is. But I can interpret the dream for you. And Daniel interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, and I, I, this is what I take of this in verse 27. He interprets the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar had been lifted up in something that we understand the scriptures to teach as pride. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Anybody here ever have a problem with pride? I'm so glad that you don't. But if you ever do, consider this right here. If you consider this story, it'll help keep you from having problem with pride. Nebuchadnezzar got lifted up in pride. I'll tell you one of the first times I realized that I had pride after I started trying to preach. I mean, I, if I consider it very much, I realized that, that I'd struggle with it just like anybody else. But, but I'd just been... Um, Liberated, and I was exercising in the ministry, and I was preaching at this little church uh, east of Lubbock, the little church called Crosbyton, Texas. And to show you how pride works, and everybody likes their, their ego be built up and encouraged, this is how, how pride works. I just started speaking. My efforts at speaking were probably worse than terrible. I went back several years later and one, one old sister told me years later, she said, boy, you have improved a lot 
Well, I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, it must have been really super bad. She meant it as a compliment, but I, all of a sudden my mind traveled back 10 years. Well, I just started trying to speak, and this old sister, May Reeves, came through the handshake. And she didn't just walk past, little bitty lady. She would stop in the middle of the handshake, and I just started speaking. And she would shake my hand, and she said, Brother Stevens, she said, I believe that's probably the best sermon I ever heard in my life. And so on the way home, I got to thinking. Her daddy was a preacher. In fact, he was a real well-known preacher in West Texas. And he was great. He really was. And I thought to myself, If she sat under preaching of her father, who was absolutely one of the greatest preachers in West Texas, then probably it's not really as bad as I think it is. And I began to get just a little bit lifted up. And every week she'd come through and she'd just stop and she'd tell me, that's the best sermon I ever heard in my life. And about three weeks after that, She wasn't at church and her family announced that she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she probably couldn't remember the sermon I preached. But here I was getting lifted up in pride. And the Lord knew how to get my attention. Now, I like the attitude that the last sermon we've heard is the best one that we've ever heard. Sister Helen Beecham had that attitude. But when it goes to exalting your pride, something's wrong. Look at what happened right here. Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, I can tell you what the dream means. I don't know that you're going to want me to tell you, but I can tell you. And he said, in fact, I would recommend, based on the interpretation of this dream, I would recommend that you repent of your pride. I'm summarizing it right here. But he says, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. I think that, that Daniel is saying right here, King, I know the interpretation of the dream and I'll share with you and I've shared with you the interpretation of the dream. But you might, he's saying right here, you need to you need to repent and you need to turn from your ways and God just might spare you and have mercy upon you. I think that's what it means right here. But it goes over and we will see the fulfillment of this dream. So God works things in such a way. He works creation. He works salvation. And he works our daily lives in such a way that he gets the glory. So if he gets the glory, it's not for us to get. I remember when we had the dedication service here at Mount Carmel years ago, uh, uh, when we built the new addition onto the building, there there was a discussion among several, and several came to me and said, well, we have this new building and we were having a special service to uh, 
to uh, uh, give the Lord the glory for blessing us to have a need to build a new building and then blessing us with the uh, provisions to build the new building. And several came and said, who are we going to dedicate it to? We and named a whole host of names that we should dedicate the building to. And one of them was mine. And I knew that wasn't the right thing just because I was the pastor here at that time. And I said, I've got an idea. How about we dedicate the building to the Lord? It's the Lord's house. It's the Lord's church. It's the Lord's building. Let's dedicate it to the Lord. I don't want it dedicated to me. No way. Let's dedicate it to the Lord. Now let's look at what happens right here. Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up in pride. Now, we've got a wonderful group of folks here at Mount Carmel. Wonderful group of folks. And each one of you have special gifts and special abilities. And I want to tell you, you ought to use them. I can look at different ones of you and I could highlight the gifts and abilities that I know. And I only know a small portion of them in each one of your lives. And I want you to Use them to the fullest, but you use them to the glory of God. Because if you don't use them to the glory of God, there's a real good possibility that the Lord will take it away from you. He sure will. Nebuchadnezzar was taking a walk. And he was strolling through the kingdom and the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. And as he was taking this walk, it says Nebuchadnezzar in his own mind, he actually spoke it. He thought it and then he spoke it. And as he was walking, it says Nebuchadnezzar spoke and he says, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of of the kingdom. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, no doubt, was used in building it. And God can use folks. God doesn't have to. God can use you. And if you're used, you ought to give the Lord the credit for it and be thankful for it. But Nebuchadnezzar was walking and he says, Look at this great kingdom that I've built. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar should have said is, look at this wonderful kingdom that God's built. I'm blessed to witness it. I'm blessed to see it. I'm blessed to enjoy the blessings of it. Look at the power of God. Look what he says right here. He says, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for the house and kingdom? And he says, not only have I built it, he says, by the might of my power. He, and then he gets, it just even gets a little bit worse right here. Nebuchadnezzar says, look at this great kingdom that I have built. And he says, I built it by my power. And he says, I've actually built it for the honor of my majesty. So Nebuchadnezzar's walking around and rather than saying, look what God has done for me. Look what God has done for others around me. Look at what God is blessing and holding up and sustaining. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was walking around and he says, look at what I have built. And I built it for my honor and for my majesty. Me, me, me. 
Nebuchadnezzar was taking the glory and claiming it himself. He was claiming the glory himself. And look at what happened. And this is the fulfillment of the dream that happened right here. And I think this is interesting right here. Sometimes God delays his work and actions But right here it happened while Nebuchadnezzar was speaking these words. It says, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, thy kingdom is departed from thee. He said, and not only was his kingdom taken from him, but even his reasoning was taken from him. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, he's not in his right mind? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was not in his right mind. His his judgment and his clarity and his wisdom and his power, all of it was taken immediately from Nebuchadnezzar. You want to know one way that you can quickly lose what God has given you is by claiming the credit and glory yourself. He says right here, I don't care if that's your education. I don't care if that's the, uh, uh, the provisions that you built up. I don't care if it's your property. I don't care if it's your family. I don't care if it's your health. I don't care what it is. If you claim the credit for it, you better watch out. The Lord may take it away from you. Now look what he says right here. O King Nebuchadnezzar, a voice came from heaven, voice from heaven came saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. He says, Thy kingdom is departed from thee. Today your kingdom is departed from you. And it said, And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat the grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou knowest that the most tool, the most high ruleth in the kingdom, uh, ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth uh, to whomsoever he will. It, it basically says that that very hour, while Nebuchadnezzar was speaking, as he was walking around in his mind, pondering, and his voice was proclaiming, look at all these great things that I have done. He says that very hour, it says it was fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from the men out into the field. And it says that he did eat the grass like the oxen. His body was wet with the dews of heaven till the hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nail Nails like birds' claws. He looked. He was out in the field and he looked and he acted like an animal because God had removed his reasoning and his judgment from him. Here's a king that everybody looked up to. Here's a king that had a whole lot of power, had a whole lot of authority, and he completely lost his sanity. He completely lost his mind and he was wandering out in the fields. It says out in the grass of the fields, his hair was like eagle's feathers, And his nails were like bird's claws. And he lost his judgment and his discernment. And at the end of the days, Nebuchadnezzar gives a different testimony right here. He said, after this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven. You ever find yourself in that state? Look to the Lord. He says, I lifted up my eyes into heaven and my understanding returned unto me and I blessed the most high God and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is from everlasting and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And he says, and I can declare unto you that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and that God does his will 
in the army of heaven and among, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, uh, what doest thou? And he says, at that time, my reason returned unto me for the glory of the kingdom and the honor and brightness returned unto me. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of kings, all whose works are truth and his ways are judgment. And he says, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're taught the principle right here that no flesh should glory in his presence. And that that's why he works things the way he does. That's why he did creation the way he did. That's why he did salvation the way that he did. Why he arranged all of salvation. And then even the way that he blesses and sustains and holds us up here in this life. That he does it in such a way that he gets the glory. According as it is written. You just can't go wrong if you remember this principle right here. He that glorieth. It's okay to glory, but not in yourself. It's in the Lord. According as it's written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. 